Welcome to Economics Happy Hour. My name's Matt. And I'm Jadrian. And we are thrilled to be back in, I guess we would call it the studio. <laughs> Unlike being live, although our live ones were fun. I hope everybody enjoyed those. But we are back to normal. This is going to likely be released in October, but it's still somewhat early in our semester. So how is life yeah. back on the Virginia Tech campus? Uh, so I think whenever we when we met last time, we were in Cincinnati uh, gearing up for the semester. So I think both of us were, I'm going to speak for you. I don't know. I assume that we were both very nervous and anxious. And usually the weeks leading up to the semester are stressful, um, which I'm actually glad we recorded a few of them during Jet Set because it kind of helped me settle into the semester. And so I, I'm feeling much better now. Um, so it's much easier to have this conversation than if we were actually trying to do them in order. I think it'd be a lot harder. Do it, do it initially. Yeah. I don't... I was really busy as I was recording last. I was teaching again for the first time in the fall for a few years. And because I started doing videos, I started realized, let me release videos as I'm doing the class. And I had, I did a whole lot of them in August. I've still got some more, but the goal was to get as much as I could get done ahead of time yeah. uh, for the class and, and record those. But it's, Semester has been good here so far. It's been fantastic. It's so much fun to be back in the classroom. And this is the first full class I normally teach that's been normal since spring of 2019. Ooh. So are you teaching game theory? Or I'm teaching game theory. I taught it okay. spring of 19. I taught it fall of 2020. Of course, that was total mm -hmm. chaos. I mean, it was fun, but much more stressful is teaching it. We were in person and then also had to relay it for those who were doing yeah. it remotely at the same time and masks on and all of the stuff. Oh, so you were probably, okay. So this is very different than the Penn State version because like the Penn State version, all the classes are so big that pretty much every class was online. Like they yeah. said, they said some things were this hybrid set, but like it was really only classes that had like 10 or 12 students. I mean, if you had any sort of sizable class of more yep. than 20, you were online. So were you doing the whole like, 15 students where seven people are in a room that hold 50 and then seven are online. Like, was it, did it, was it that sort of setup? No, um, we, our public safety basically said it could be a 40% capacity. I had a room that would normally hold 50 and capacity was 20. And I think there weren't quite 20 in there. Okay. And then I think it maybe might've been 14 total, but then two or three of them were taking it remotely. So <laughs> they had to be zoomed at the same time. And um, man, that was a lot of work. It's it's more stressful. I think I could do a reasonably good online class. Um, I think I can do and, you know, I will not sound humble here, but I think I can do an exceptional in-person class. Yes. I mean, it's, it's our craft. And I mean, we care about this. We are the people we go to conferences. We study the best methods. I, um, I'm not going to like tone things down. I think and in a small class setting when I'm in person, I believe I'm an exceptional teacher. Yes teaching it in person but then also having the camera on you to go remote was so stressful and it's just yeah. it's that extra thing you're thinking about normally i won't say i'm on autopilot by any means but there's when you've done things a few times you don't have to think about how do i engage everybody in mm -hmm. the class i just i kind of know how to do it you always had to think oh am i engaging the online people enough what about the in class what's the mix do they hear me you know is the <laughs> mic working all that that it was stressful but it was, yeah, we did what we had to do. And you, so you were remote in 2020. So we were 2020 to 2021, that first year, 
We yeah. were fully, I was fully remote. I say we as uh, most of Penn State was fully remote, sure. um, which was actually not that bad, right? I think I, same thing. I'm, I think I'm a very good teacher in person. I think I'm captivating. Um, doing it fully remote, I could I could channel all of my energy into this yep. sort of online delivery. So I, I did mine as like webinars. So it was more like you were kind of logging into a live stream of me sure. teaching. Um, but I think it was really engaging. Yep. My worst semester I've ever had teaching was fall 2021, where it was the hybrid version. Um, but we were doing this weird sort of 80% capacity, but like, for those of you who don't, uh, so, some people know this from listening, some people don't. I teach classes, at the time I had 700 students. So it was one of those like, you know, 500 people could enroll in the course, um, but I had to offer both in-person and online. And so you're getting these weird 700 person rooms with 200 people in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so right, imagine a movie theater, uh, a, a very, not even a movie theater. That's actually, I mean, bigger, right? Like imagine yeah. a small uh, musical theater. Yeah. Um, well, actually 700 is, yeah. there are many Broadway houses that yeah. are like five or 600 or something. Right. So it, it was, right, like you said, it was hard to get those, like, you know, are the 200 people online, can they hear me? Can, is the microphone yeah. working? Is, you know, is it recording? What's the lag? And I mean, I had so many issues because it was just, it's really hard to do both. It's hard to make sure the people in class are kind of engaged, especially when it's 200 people in a 700 person room. Struggled. Yeah. I struggled so bad. Yeah. Yeah. That was stressful. And I guess we're talking about struggles and we're not having a beer yet. So like, we will overlook something. <laughs> well, I guess it's actually, you know, this works actually with our topic for today too. So I think this is, this came up during the pandemic. So I, I think we had a nice tie in without realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you I drinking, think... Matt? I will, uh, in honor, um, I, I might have had this on before, I can't remember, but in honor of your home state. Oh, that one's so good. Uh, that is that is one of my favorite Shiner varieties. So for mo those listening, which the vast majority are listening, it's a Shiner sea salt and lime. It's, um, it's a good beer. There's trivia tonight, so I will probably have another beer at trivia. So I wanted not an IPA earlier. Yeah. This is a lot. No, that is, yeah. I struggled to find that one in stores. because I, So I think they sell them up in the Sealands Grove area, they but do. they didn't They didn't have that variety down in, um, in State College. So I remember there was once, I think I was driving like Williamsport, and I like pulled over to a gas station. I just happened to see it, and I was yeah. like, oh my God, I've got to get this. Well, next time uh, I visit, is, you got a good uh, one. Actually, next time will be the first time, but next time I visit, <laughs> I'll bring some down. So. Thank you. What, I appreciate it. it. And I, I am drinking. Uh, our family went to uh, Hard Rock Cafe in New Orleans, so I have a mug this time. So. Nice. Um, I am. I am drinking a, a repeat, um, which I, which means I'm going to need your help saying this again. Uh, so we are recording this early September. Narragansett. So kinda, it's Narragansett. Yeah. Um, it's early September, which means it's still summer. Uh, it's still hot enough to be summer. So I am drinking the Narragansett Shandy beer, uh, mostly because I got to clean out the fridge. So. We gotta. We're we're working we through some of the, the back of the beer, back of the fridge beers. Yeah, yeah. No, I've. <laughs> I know the struggle is real, right? These these are you know, first world problems, as you would say. Well, you know, we're both we're both similar, right? You have the salt and lime. We both have this sort of lemon yeah. lime mixed together. Uh, I'm going with my VT Science silicone mug. Is uh, what I what I picked That's out of cool. the cabinet. Uh, cheers, Matt. Cheers. So speaking of struggles, right? I mean, we, you know, Jadrian's struggling. We've got to figure out um, cleaning it, cleaning the beer out of the fridge. <laughs> Almost the same level as our topic today. Well, it's not. I mean, it's yeah, uh, it's designed to address the struggle. And yeah. in a previous episode, 
we talked about school vouchers where I had thought a lot more about it and I had taught school vouchers um, and you had some thoughts on it, but kind mm -hmm. of more newly formed. Yep. We're going to flip it a little bit, not a hundred percent flip uh, to talk about something you have taught in class and I followed, but I have not taught this and that is universal basic income. Yes. So, I'll let I'll you go ahead and with the definition first, Jadrian. What, what, how would we define universal basic income? So the, the and this is, I think, what, I think I like that we're starting with the definition because I think what we'll talk about throughout this portion is like, you know, if we don't agree on universal basic income, what are some, what are some other things we could do? And then as soon as you change it, it's not universal basic income. Uh, so generally, universal basic income (UBI). Uh, is some sort of program where citizens of an area, so you can have UBI at a state, federal, regional level, but um, citizens of an area would receive a flat payment over some period of time, typically a month, uh, sort of no strings attached. So it would be considered an entitlement program. Uh, you are entitled to that item. It's not generally not a welfare program. So there's not a kind of in its truest form, there's no sort of income limit. So um, probably the most popular one in the United States that was pitched maybe, ooh, I mean, it's been a while, maybe 2016 uh, presidential sort of debate. No, I think it, I think it was 2020 with, um, was it 2020? with, with uh, Pete Yang. Buttigieg. No, I was thinking of Yang. Actually, if you go one back. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I'm completely wrong on that. Yeah. But I, that was, I think that was sort of the, he's not the first politician. So, you know, there's some other supporters of it or so like versions of it. But I think he kind of really popularized it, at least in the primary portion. Um, so his idea was basically every citizen, every U.S. citizen would get $2,000 per month, regardless of whether you're working or not. It doesn't matter. Every single person gets $2,000. Um, that would be a universal basic income. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's And that's the extent that I know on that. The Essentially, I mean, I followed it a bit. So when you're teaching it, what elements are you talking about when you're when you're talking to classes about? Yeah, so I teach it in my labor course. So I don't teach it in principles. Uh, so I taught a labor economics course for 10 years at Penn State. And one of the big things I did sort of, it was pre-pandemic. Um, I kind of flipped it and just said that like every week we would sort of talk about some sort of topic that I think students really wanted to know about. So it was things like we would have a topic for you know, a week on automation. We'd have a week on minimum wage. We'd have a week on, uh, government programs. And so that's where I taught it in the labor course was I sort of introduced this idea of what are entitlement programs, what are welfare programs, sort of how do those work uh, around labor? And then sort of towards the end, it's always kind of pitched as the, well, what's the next level or what are people talking about in this sort of welfare entitlement space? So that's where I was always kind of talking about mm -hmm. it with, with at least labor economics class and almost all economics majors. And so it was a little easier to have a conversation about it. No. So, the, yeah. And the issue, there was one pitched in the presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. And then there have been some pilots of this. Yeah. A, a couple initial ones looked OK. More of the recent evidence that I've just seen scattered headlines of and admittedly probably haven't, div, you know, haven't done a deep dive into the research seems a little bit more questions on the effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, there's, I mean, you know, part of the problem is there's not like a big, there's no big study of it. Um, sort of the, there's, you know, little city, not, I shouldn't say little cities. I mean, they're, they're major cities, but, you know, and it's not like New York City's doing it. Um, so there's like cities in California or in, or in Canada, and like there's these cities that'll do it, uh, but they'll give, you know, a thousand people 
they'll do a universal basic income, but you're talking about a thousand people out of millions of people. So the effect size is generally really small. Um, so the questionable side of things is basically just this idea that, you know, it, it doesn't really change working conditions. People are still going to work or not work. They're still going to do what they were doing before. Most of it, I think most of the change really has been on sort of mental health issues. It's just the comfort that it provides people in, in just a stressful situation if it's somebody who needs it. I think that's the other big part about most of the pilot programs. They're not actually, well, they're not universal in the sense that like, everyone gets it. They're more like welfare programs. You have to qualify to be in the sample. So you had to have some sort of income threshold. And so that's where I think, you know, we were talking about a little bit beforehand. That's where it gets deviated from universal basic income. Like, would it work? We don't know because all the, all the pilot programs aren't universal. Um, and they, they tend to be more like welfare programs rather than entitlement programs. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, and so Andrew Yang probably popularized and I just quick looked it up. So he, he mm -hmm. actually proposed it was a thousand dollars a month okay. on, on UBI that's proposed. The studies I've seen, the headlines, the initial one seemed it didn't do much to displace work, which is much most common. Mm -hmm. The more recent ones I've seen seem to say that, but you know, this yeah. is not me collecting them. Uh, but yeah, the mental health, I mean, there should be some, there should be less stress. <laughs> So when you and I think that's that's part of the this is where, you know, you and I have talked about our privilege some in the past where. I don't know what it's like to not be able to pay a bill, um, you know, I in grad school I did, but like I had parents who were able to support me when things were getting a little tight, um, you know, the the stress of budgeting and needing to budget is, is I think that's what I've heard, at least in this kind of literature space, is that the mental stress associated with budgeting needing to go to meetings for things like, you know, if you are on welfare or on TAMP for food stamps or any of the other programs, right? Those kind of constant meetings, plus you're likely working a, an, an hourly job that doesn't have consistent schedules. I like that sort of just yeah. the, the psychic cost of living in poverty. Uh, we don't understand that uh, today. Um, you know, there might've been moments in our past that we did, but you know, I, I don't understand what that's like today. And so I think that's, especially the mental health side, I think that's been kind of one of the biggest that just kind of helps smooth out income for people. Yeah. Um, so what are your, um, you're sounding, you sound pretty positive about UBI. So I am, I will definitely, I'm positive in this. So I, okay, that's this because I think, so Matt and I, sometimes we chat a little bit before we start hitting record, but we don't chat days before. Um, you know, I'm positive on UBI. I, I would say I'm pro universal basic income. And I'm gonna put a caveat on here for anyone who's thinks that I'm ready to just start spending trillions of dollars. I think the adjustments that I would make would not make it a UBI is the problem, um, right? It's like, a, I would start putting caveats on it. I, I think there are, yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about this like in the taxes section. It would be really nice to take sort of all the different funding programs, things like TAMP, housing vouchers, child support, food stamps, and instead of just making somebody go to six different meetings to make sure you qualify, man, would it be easier just to give them like one lump check and say, here, you know, here's the payment you would have gotten. Um, so I think about like sort of the inefficiencies of running a lot of programs. That's where I'm kind of pro UBI is like, I can see how that would cut out a lot of the inefficiencies in that space, but I don't think I deserve it, right? I don't think I deserve a thousand dollars a month just because I'm a citizen of the United States. So like I would propose higher taxes on people who 
receive it, but have some sort of income level. And then now it's not universal. Yeah. Now it's a welfare program. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my take on my general thought on this without, you know, studying it, studied it a bit is I love the idea in theory, but I don't think it will ever work in practice. It is precisely what you mentioned. I, I despise the idea that it's 40 different programs. And I think that the, you know, right now that we have 40 different programs that are, you know, welfare programs mm -hmm. that people can, and, and it actually gives perverse incentives because all of these different programs might have different threshold levels. Mm -hmm. So we had an economist from the University of Georgia on campus about maybe five or six years ago, Jeffrey Dorfman, mm -hmm. and he presented on that you could have a single, you know, it was a single mother was working. If if she was making under thirty one thousand dollars a year, there was this level of benefits that was coming in. But once she crossed thirty one thousand, her her income dropped. Her overall, you know, the total or actually the total amount coming in between income and government benefits dropped, and she would not get back to the same level until making over seventy thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrible, horrible incentive in terms of working hard because there are plenty of jobs that can pay 80, 90, 100, 110,000 a year or more that people could try to get to. The way you get to those, of course, is you first start working at the one that's 35 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70. But there's zero incentives to do that. And it's essentially holding people back. I would love a UBI if it replaced everything else right but then it, and this goes back to what i was saying right but then it's not a universal basic income we basically have another welfare program right where it's you know there's some sort of income threshold that you only get it under certain amounts um and that's i think that takes away the universal part of universal basic income yeah you ba we basically have a basic income program yeah i i'd be okay with a universal basic but you're getting rid of all the other stuff and it's just yeah. saying okay here's you know there's this isn't much but Hey, everybody, it's 12,000 per individual. You can figure out, I mean, you're able to, it's, it, hey, we're not saying you're living the high life, but you're going to be able to find a place to put something you, you'll have, you'll be able to have clothes, food, and have some place to have some shelter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not much, but you know, you'll always be able to live. Have um, you, but then have taking you read the all book, the other stuff away. Have you read the book Financial Diaries by, um, I want to say it's Jonathan Murdoch. I don't believe I have. Oh my God, it's fascinating. So this is actually exactly what you just said, this idea, right? Like you will have a, like, you know that there's income coming every month. Um, so Financial Diaries, um, I had it, I assigned it as a reading actually to my labor course before, um, actually before I switched to this topics method. Um, it basically, it's a program that he worked with and other people of just like getting people to record their income. Um, and what they're spending money on, how much money is coming in. So it's this sort of incomes, there you go. earnings, savings, all that sort of stuff. And then they like, they link it up with things like um, financial records from JP Morgan, stuff like that. And I, and I, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It, I didn't fully appreciate how much people's income fluctuates month to month. Um, even if you have sort of a steady job, you might... Like we're very lucky that we have salary. So I know every two weeks, my paycheck's gonna be the exact same every single time. Sure. Uh, but even people who are working sort of hourly jobs that are full-time, you might be working hourly full-time 
but some weeks you work 45, some weeks you're working 38, like you're, you're averaging full time. And he sort of shows this, like this just up and down stuff of people's income and sort of talks about these dips and dips and peaks. I think is what he calls them in the book. And I just never, right. You never sort of process this. And, you know, he talks about, I'm one of the really popular, I guess we can, we can throw in another econ term, um, is uh, consumption smoothing. You know, the, what's, what's the income? That's a, there's actually a phrase for it. Something hypothesis. Um, yeah. What, um, lifetime income? Come hypothesis. Hypothesis? Where um, this is, again, I, consumption Matt, smoothing Matt, is pretty good. Matt, Matt and I are not macroeconomists. So <laughs> no. if you are a macroeconomist, we apologize for us um, trying to talk about this. Um, but one of the things he talks uh, talks about in that section is essentially this idea that like we teach students, you know, you make money, save when you make a lot, spend when you don't have as much. And the idea is you consume, you know, you spread out your consumption. And what Murdoch talks about in the book was really interesting is that that is a um, that is a very privileged way to look at income and savings is that we assume that they have income to save and that whenever they have income that they're not spending it on something else that they need, you know, some sort of doctor's visit or um, maybe the car needs new tires and we happen to have income. So we actually are going to spend it now while we have it. And so it was sort of fascinating. And I think you sort of mentioned in that comment that I'd say that pro comment about UBI is that it at least guarantees you have some cons- consistent consumption level you know, yeah. that you will be able to buy groceries regularly um, and that you still are going to need probably more to cover rent and healthcare and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's one that I think I, I, in theory, I love it in practice. Mm-hmm. I just, I think it's another program that would be tacked on. I can't fathom that we're going to be getting rid of all of the other programs that there yeah. are, but it would be so much more efficient for mm-hmm. society. And it really trusts people a lot more Yeah, to hand, to, to give funding instead of giving, Oh, here's your energy assistance. And here's, here's your housing. Your, here's your, housing. Here's your uh, you know, the food stamps or um, EB. Well, so I'm, glad you, I'm actually glad you said it in, in terms of a trust and freedom part. So I actually, I present this, this is one of my, uh, I have a panel of three people that I say, are, you know, who are supporters of universal basic income. And I put up these three people's faces and I say, you know, you would normally not have these three people on a slide together uh, in some sort of different ways. Um, and so actually there's four, but I, I put the fourth person before. So the four, the first person, uh, there's a cool quote from Thomas Paine uh, on redistribution. So it's not his common sense one. It's the one before mm-hmm. from his agrarian justice. Yeah. And it basically says, um, if you right, think back to farmer, you know, those of you listening, right, think back to farmers of the colonial times. Uh, his argument was basically, um, you know, the government gave out all this land to people, but kind of roundabout way, um, a farmer puts work in and then takes away from the land, but that like that land didn't actually belong to someone. Like it's sort of the kind of a roundabout way of saying like somewhere somebody was handed something. And then was able to profit off of that through their hard work and, and entrepreneurship and innovation and things like that. And so one of the arguments he kind of proposes is that a part of that, not all of it, but a part of it should also be given collectively because we're all on this earth together. So that was, he's sort of the, he's got a cool quote that kind of goes along with it. But the other three, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Richard Nixon, uh, and Hayek are the three okay. the three faces that I have up there. Yeah. Um, that are sort of, you know, I think Nixon was part of the, 
negative income or negative tax. Well, I know Milton Friedman was big on like negative income yeah. tax, um, which is sort of a better program. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, and I think you could be like, I'm pretty libertarian. I think mm -hmm. it's much more libertarian, like to, to do it this way. Then, I mean, you could argue over how big it should be. Um, right. and, and how much, I mean, my, my default would be, boy, I mean, we, we do not, we want to make it low enough where, okay, there's, you can eat, right. Yeah. I mean, like it's gotta be pretty low, but, but the be more efficient, it's more trusting, mm -hmm. it's more, and it reduces a, you could probably get rid of a hundred government agencies at once, right? Like what well, yeah. it, it, it so, makes a heart sing. I mean, so there was yeah. an MBER article on it. So this is a couple of years old now. So I guess I'll tell you the numbers from the, from that article. Um, and then I haven't looked at the, I haven't looked at the updated one just I haven't taught labor in a while. Um, but they basically said, if you were to give only to, and this actually doesn't be another one of those caveats. If you only give it to working age adults, there's a little over 200 million working age adults. Uh, if you gave everybody about $12,000 uh, a year, it would cost $2.61 trillion um, in terms of the deficit. And so if you offset the welfare programs, that saves you about a trillion dollars a year. So you're still adding some to the debt, but then it goes back to the, well, who gets it, right? Is it a household? Is it an individual? Is it working age? Is it... Yeah. Right. Do we include somebody who's 17 because they may be living on their own? So, like, I think you get into these sort of really interesting um, political arguments. And I think we've seen I'll say we've seen some of it when we think about things like even during the pandemic. Right. There was the uh, the child care credits that, you know, if you had a kid, you got some money. There was obviously the, the payments that a lot of people got under certain levels. Yeah. Um, like we've seen in some parts, and I, I remember this being a big debate during like when those uh, stimulus checks came out, because I want to, if I remember correctly, I don't know, correct me, you probably know this better than I do. If you were, a, there was some of them, if you were a dependent, you didn't get them. Maybe it was I like the first one. I, I'm not 100% on that, but I think you're correct. Uh, yeah. I don't think my, I had an 18 year old in the house. I don't think, I don't think he got a check. Did he get any? So there's three of them, right? I, think. I don't think he got any. I'm not 100%. Yeah. So uh, this was one of the big, I remember this being a, an issue because the, I remember my students being really mad about it. Um, and we had this conversation in class and I said, look, if you really wanted to stimulate the economy, if that is actually your goal, should you give it to an 18 year old or should you give it to Dean Rosu? Uh, who is going to actually stimulate the economy with $1,000? Um, I have a, a feeling that your, uh, your 18 year old child would save very little of that thousand dollars you might plop some of it into a savings account you probably gamble with it yeah yeah the, yeah <laughs> i don't know um it might be the wrong we might not be representative agents of our <laughs> age but but some of the spending that happened in covid yeah. is part of what makes me hesitant is we did we mm -hmm. saw the labor force participation rate drop dramatically now some of this was people were out of work and then made a decision but i think some of the initial, I mean, there was a lot of funding given out, you know, increased unemployment yeah. benefits and, and just cash handed out. That's that's the part that makes me. Well, the, but I, this is the thing, right? If you're only getting a thousand dollars a month, you're you're barely paying rent at a thousand dollars a month in most places. I mean, maybe some really small areas, you might be able to get an apartment for eight hundred, nine hundred bucks. Right. I mean, like people aren't quitting over a thousand dollars a month. Mm. 
but you're but if you think about it from an hourly standpoint, you're not needing to work as many hours. If you had, so, yeah, but if you you know if you have two people together though, twenty four thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's... yes. But then it turns into should it be per household or per person? Or per person. Right? Does a seventeen year old get? Does a dependent get it? Right? If you have if you have a college student living in your house, do you get three payments? This is where it's fascinating, and I think this goes back to like I think we've said this in a previous episode. A lot of times, economists don't have good answers. We're we can talk about pros and cons of both sides, but like we can't sit up here and go like this is the better option. Yeah, um, and those so I don't know, and those don't get you the uh, quotes as much either, right? Like the right. Know, the person who's very confident is is always going to get will get in the media quite a bit more. So. so let me give you the pros and cons. I, I'll at least present pros and cons because I think we did this with uh, school vouchers. So I'll give you yes, the ones that are on, on this part. So pros, um, there's an argument that I, you've kind of mentioned already. Universal basic income would provide a certain standard of living, particularly as automation. And I think really now artificial intelligence stuff, as that sort of grows, it provides this sort of nice standard of living that if you do lose your job because of some reason, like it's kind of there as a baseline. Um, we talked about it kind of on the on the opening part of it is that generally most UBI programs show um, some sort of mental health gains, happiness gains, sort of less stress, which we would think hypothetically, right, would improve, would would pass down, you know, sprinkle down to kids mm-hmm. being better, better fed, um, maybe probably working more under that scenario. Um, so those are generally the two, I mean, those are really the only two pros that are ever really pitched. Um is you know a standard of living and happiness uh, there's some arguments for fairness right maybe it's a you, know, you could you could tax yeah, some I mean, at the top to bring it down but i mean if you do it right it should be more efficient mm-hmm. and we should have fewer people who need to oversee the program which hopefully means those individuals who are you know pretty bright and talented are using their talents in other ways to help society yeah instead of instead of waiting to fill out forms to get another another program they can go just do something yeah um the cons of it are often uh, the cost i mean that's i think the the biggest one is going to be the cost and i think as soon as you start chipping away at that it's not universal um anymore um but then there's arguments uh against against it because of sort of the value of work right you presented this actually as that a universal basic income would you know open people up to go do work um, there is another side that basically says this devalues work um, that, you know, you're getting a handout. So now there's not this sort of inherent joy um, or purpose in working because somebody will just go make their UBI and that's it. Um, and then there's a third portion, which I'm, I'm, I don't love it as a con, but I've seen it listed a few times. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a conspiracy theory answer. Uh, the argument is basically that it's a bait and switch by capitalists. Um, that it is just a method hmm. of essentially guaranteeing that everybody has a set amount of income that um, that they'll be able to pay and continue to consume. It's sort of a consumerism type idea that it's not actually helping anybody. It's just that money is funneling back into businesses anyway. Um, okay. Which, I I, yeah, it, I, I think it's a little on the list. Um, I put it yeah. as third on that one, but... Yeah, those are, I would say those are generally the cons of it. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's um it seems good pro and con balance on this. So before 
anything else on uh, on UBI before we get to pop culture, which we had mentioned mm. ahead of time, could be a real struggle for us to figure out related well, to. Well, this. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal the book as, as my pop culture since I thought okay. about it right in the middle. Go ahead, of it. go ahead. That gives um, me more time. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'd say there there is some. I don't know if this is pop culture or not. Um, there there are some fun examples of UBI happening. I think every every couple months, I think there's some city or country that does it. Um, but there are popular examples. So the Alaska Permanent Fund is sort of a, a fun example. So if you're a resident of Alaska, the state's oil revenues get redistributed back um, to people who live in Alaska. It's super small. Um, it's, you know, I think the, I have my little chart. This data only goes from 2016, so you can tell how old this is. Um, at least up until 2016, the largest payout was like $2,000 for the year. So it's super, super small. Um, there is a story about um, a village in Kenya that got universal basic income. I think some some big funder was basically giving out uh, $22 a month is how much they uh, were giving each of the people there. It was a 12-year program. But again, it's relative. I don't want to say that. I mean, it's, it's large to them, but small to us. It was basically enough, sort of like you were saying, it, it hits basic necessities. So they were able to you know, pay for school supplies, for books for their kids, sort of that kind of base level stuff. Um, and then there's just a bunch of stuff around other cities and stuff. But those are the two that are sort of the fun ones to talk about. Yeah. Um, I don't have, I mean, it's, it's tough. I was trying to think through, are there, um, can I find a song? Can I find a <laughs> movie clip that exactly hits? I mean, hitting universal basic income is a little bit difficult. Uh, I'll mention, and I don't know that I have a song for it because the new soundtrack's not out, but uh, the musical Here Lies Love is out in, on Broadway. It's, abs it's a fantastic show if you're in the New York area. And it wasn't selling too well, so you can also get cheap tickets. <laughs> we literally showed up at 6 o'clock to the, to the theater itself, myself and my daughter, and asked for rush tickets if they had any. I don't know if... Do you know what a rush ticket is? Have I no. So theaters will put some day of tickets... For it'll depend on the theater, but 30, 35, or $40 usually that they'll sell. If the show is selling good, it'll often be partial view. If it's not selling good, mm -hmm. it'll often be better. You you show up, you ask for rush tickets. If they have them, you get a ticket, 35 bucks. And these aren't bad seats. Mm -hmm. Often, for when the shows are reasonably doing well, uh, the box office opens at 10 and you got you have to line up ahead of time. So I've done this where my wife and I have done this many years ago where we would get there an hour early and you know I think I I think I've done this. Um, I, this sounds familiar. I just didn't know they were called rush tickets. Yeah, yep. yep. So it's and you you we several times I one time uh with my kids we went at 6 in the morning. The tickets were 200 each. We show up at 6 in the morning and we got $35 tickets for all five of us. And it was a bit of an experience. At 6 in the morning you bring you they were both in high school at the time. The it was the older two and you know, I mean, how often do you do that in the life? Well, for us, it was one time, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it's, so it was kind of fun. We showed up at 6 p.m. This is a lot past the 10 a.m. opening and asked if they had rush tickets. And we got five tickets, $35 each. Now, we weren't together mm -hmm. because that would have been a little bit too much to ask. But still, this was fantastic. The show is wonderful. It follows the Marcos family in the Philippines, their rise okay. and their fall. But there are there's a song in there. And if you um, if we if you look up the um, like songs in Here Lies Love, um, they'll 
talk about, let me get you the, there's one song where they start to talk about, you know, I'll take, you know, the politician, I will take care of you as, as you move along. Uh, the problem is the songs that are on the Broadway version and the songs that are in the earlier version that have the soundtrack aren't always the same. So I'm telling you a song that might be tough <laughs> to find online. We can, we can find it. Well, you're going to yeah. have to find it. Not me. Well, <laughs> the song that uh, the song is uh, you will be taken care of is the title. Okay. That Which is, you know, that's kind of a tough. I don't know. There aren't that many songs that probably have a better title. The problem, the version that I have downloaded that I'm looking at right now on uh, on my phone, that's not on there. That was the 2013 hmm. version. So hopefully, I don't think they have a more updated version. Hopefully, a new, um, you know, the Broadway cast will record this again. Here Lies Love Deluxe Album. Hey, there it is. Okay. You could listen in 2010, I guess that was a... Um, in it's wild that they're just that they're different. I just I always assumed that I assumed you would get different like singers or maybe sort of different sounds styles. I wouldn't expect to like just have whole songs cut out. Yeah, they they actually do a lot of it as yeah. they before they get to Broadway. They'll add songs. They'll cut songs. Sometimes the songs are great. It just doesn't help with the flow or it adds mm -hmm. on. I think the, the a famous one that I heard that I'm I'm not a hundred percent is true, but a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. If you've heard of that show, it's a Sondheim show. It's supposed to be funny. Nobody was laughing at it. You know they weren't. So they added a song called "Comedy Tonight" to be the opening number to kind of tell the audience this is you're you're about to see a comedy. And it completely changed the reactions people had to the show. So that's interesting. Yeah. But uh, Here Lies Love is a good show. There's a lot of touching on uh, politicians promising to take mm -hmm. care of people in there. So would recommend recommend that next time you are find yourself in Broadway on Broadway or in Times Square. You did a you did a better job coming up with a with a topic than I did. Uh, that was I you know, this is. You know, this is gonna be one of those moments where we say maybe a listener has a better a better hey, one for chime us. In. Um, please comment and let us know. Yeah, I like the comments. I, we got a comment I completely disagreed with uh, <laughs> this weekend, and I, I like it. The person was respectful, yeah. and I, I I still think um, you know if you're listening now, I still think you're wrong, but it's it's okay. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate a good um, a good friendly discussion online. Please yeah. leave a comment. So I'll say the closest I can come to it. So I, I mentioned the Financial Diaries book earlier. I think it's a yep. great book. Jonathan Murdoch has, it's a, it was really, really good. Um, pop culture wise, have you, I don't know if we talked about this before. Have you watched Adam Conover's The G Word? No. It's on Netflix. So he did, did you ever watch his Adam Ruins Everything stuff? Um, only, the econ, only the econ ones that... <laughs> Y'all posted from time yeah. to time. So. Yeah, they're good. Um, those are really good. Uh, so he came out with a new um, a new series called The G Word. The G Word is government. Um, hmm. It's I want to say it's six or seven episodes total. Um, it's in a similar style as Adam Ruins Everything. Um, but basically it is a sort of a documentary version of um, a Michael Lewis book. Have you heard of the fifth? risk fifth watt um, I've, I've heard of it i haven't read this it's, it's something like that right it's the fifth 
he has some sort of new like how this says how much we're prepared for this um it's called the fifth risk so uh the book is about essentially um it was about the Department of Energy, the Department of Agriculture, Department of Congress, like what sort of problems do those agencies have that would then create like future problems later, right? So like the, you know, if the USDA goes down, what does that mean for like food in America sort of thing? Um, so it's based similarly to that, uh, the episodes of the G word, each one has a different topic. So uh, the first one's food, then weather, then money, the future disease and then like political change is sort of the end part. Um, but he does, I think he does a really good job. So I will say it's, it's, it's pro government in the sense that um, he sort of talks about ways that you don't realize the government is involved in your life. Uh, so I'll give you the weather example. Um, Cause I think the weather one's super fascinating. I think a lot of us use uh, the weather channel, AccuWeather. Uh, those are private companies, but they actually get their weather models from uh, the National Weather Service. Okay, yeah. and so they're they're taking government produced things and then repackaging it. And so AccuWeather sale sells like a premium version of basically National Weather Service um, things. And so it talks about this idea of like sort of the congressional issues of like the what the National Weather Service can't make their own weather app. They're not allowed to. Um, but this private company is selling government data. Like it's it's sort of an hmm. interesting like. How is the government involved without you realizing it? But they also yeah. talk about, you know, where does the government kind of screw up in all of these things as well? Um, so it, I think he does a, he is not, I mean, I'm going to say he's not 50 50. Um, he is definitely kind of more on the pro government side, but more in the sense of like, you need to recognize like the government's more involved in everything that you do without realizing it. Hmm. So that's going to be mine. It's not, I think it goes back to what you said, right? It's the, it's, there's a lot more trust in letting people do what they want to do rather than just, you know, telling people how to do things. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you to everybody who stuck with us to the end today. We will, we have economics, happy hour stickers available. Mm -hmm. Simply leave a comment, preferably a positive one. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, send us a screenshot to economics, happy hour at gmail.com or just, look up either of us and send us the screenshot and we will be happy to mail you uh several stickers for your laptops yes. or water bottles or uh what, whatever you would like the more of these stickers we give away that means that people are actually listening and doing what we tell them we can order more stuff and i've got more ideas for our stuff but we need to give away these stickers uh, yeah. so please please leave comments so that we can then order more merch and because I really want to order the next batch of stuff uh, that I'll tell Matt. Not you will not get to hear. I'll tell Matt after we log off. Uh, but we have I I have more interesting things in mind. So please leave comments so we can get rid of these stickers and get you other things. Oh, sounds good. Well, how was the beer? Was good, Jadrian? Oh, it's almost gone. It, I actually liked this way better than the first time I drank it. So this is a, a nice change. That's good. Yeah, mine was good too. Well, and thanks to everybody for listening. And Jadrian, until next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>